in just a few seconds, you've seen images of my life that depict some sense of normalcy. But pictures don't always tell the whole story. And this morning, I'd like to share with you some of my pain, my attempts to control it, my surrendering, and God healing it. By the time I was six years old, my parents were divorced, and in that short time, I'd witnessed my dad's anger and violence and the ongoing conflict between my parents. My memories include images of my dad toppling down the street behind my mother's car as she drove off. He had clung to the window, hopping along to see us. You would not look at this picture and think that this would be true. Over the next six years, all of us boys would be terribly physically abused by my mom's second husband. We were beaten black and blue, forced to beat each other, photographed, paraded in the neighborhood. Some summers we lived with my maternal grandparents, and we quaked with fear at my grandfather's rage and his physical abuse of my youngest brother or my uncle taking us to the cornfield. You wouldn't know from looking at these pictures. And it wouldn't be until I was 30 years old after the birth of my daughter that I would first acknowledge that I had been abused. By the time I was 12 years old, I hadn't seen my father for almost six years, completely abandoned by him. And that instead of being a hero, as I had hoped he would be when he re-entered my life, I would be exposed to his alcoholism, his rage, and his pornography. I could tell you more, much more. But I think you will understand that my pain began at an early age. It lasted a long time, and it runs deep. It's not the prettiest picture. I could not protect, nor was I protected. All of us kids suffered, and my story isn't unique. I wish I could say that that was the end of my my story, but that's not true. Amidst all of the chaos and turmoil, I began sexually acting out. And while living with my father, the exposure and easy access to pornography sent me down a path of self-destruction that would last decades. As with all addictions, my behavior escalated and progressed, creating a path of destruction that affected others. I led a dual life, a secret life, in which I would compromise my beliefs and values, all the while attempting to maintain an appearance of being in control. I relied on my athletic abilities, my academic accomplishments, my professional status, my income, all as methods to rationalize what was happening to me in secret for over 30 years. And then it wasn't a secret anymore. I could tell you much more about the sordid details of my illegal, immoral, and unhealthy behavior that cost me my job, my marriage, time with my children, my integrity, and friendships. I had no control, yet I had tried to control everything. My explosive anger and perfectionism were only outmatched by my self-loathing My unmanageability had affected every aspect of my life 
and the people that were dearest to me. Spiritually, I was dying, and I was convinced I had recreated what had, in fact, happened to me. At one point, I contemplated hanging myself in my garage. My pain continued, and I saw no way out. My soul was indeed weary with sorrow. I'd been trying to fill a a hole in my life for such a long time. I resisted surrendering, turning it over when I, in fact, had already turned over my life to my addiction, and it just took me. Why not something better? But all the things I had done in secret and now am ashamed of could never separate me from what I believed in my heart, that God could and would heal me if I would only let him. Obviously, I didn't have the ability to control what I was holding on to. I trusted my addiction for something it couldn't give me, and I was reluctant to surrender what was controlling me. I had great difficulty placing my trust or depending on someone else for help. Fortunately, Jesus Christ is far more dependable and trustworthy than anything I have been I'm blaming this on Rick Wander because he hugged me at the beginning of this and I just got rolling. <sighs> so much for five minutes, folks. Sorry, it's just not going to be it. I began to realize that if I'm willing to do the possible and cooperate with God's will for my life, He will do the impossible. My problem was that I had spent all these years trying to do God's job. But by doing the possible parts like going to therapy, attending 12-step groups, becoming involved in Celebrate Recovery, I began to trust God to understand His will for me, to truly repent and experience His forgiveness, and to take hold of the new life He promises. I realized that what I had held on to didn't help me, it emptied me. That letting go fills me that I was beginning to let go of what was killing me so that I could take hold of what saves me. I've always said that people change because of pain. They change as a result of it or to avoid more of it. They change when the pain of staying the same is too much, but I don't believe that's correct. I believe that people change because of love. They change because of the power of love, the direct effects of love. And in my life, this love has been the transforming power of Jesus Christ shown to me by others. By Randy. By Dave G. By Virgil. By Rick. I could tell you more, much more, about God's healing in my life God's bigger than my pain. He loves me, and he wants me to heal. And 34 years ago, that process began when J.K. Jones was my youth minister. He was the first man I saw that lived what he believed 
And he became the minister here at Windsor Road. And that's the reason why I came here 25 years ago. Through my pain, decades earlier, God had already begun my road to recovery. My powerlessness for his power. My surrender for his sovereignty. His love and forgiveness for my new life. And this is what it looks like. This six-year-old will never feel what I have felt, ever. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I'm Dave King. I'm a forgiven, grateful, recovering sex addict. Lord Jesus Christ, my brother Dave King belongs to a family of grateful, recovering sinners. And we are weak, but you are strong. And we are so thankful that you have delivered us. And that you are delivering us. And that you will deliver us. We love you with the love that comes from you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Love you too. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Let me just step on your foot. I'm so proud of you, Dave. Someone just said to me, good luck. (laughs) I can't remember who that was. (laughs) Here we are, folks. Here we are. Um, Words and all. Grace and all. Now we're in this series called The Road to Recovery. And it's a journey through the Beatitudes. The eight Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. 
Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this week in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's say that together on three. One, two, three. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek. How many of you have ever prepared a resume for a job, potential employer? On your resume, how many of you have ever described yourself using the word meek? <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah. And neither have I. <laughs> I mean, Dave, Dave will tell you that. Dave was on the pulpit committee that hired me 21 years ago. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't use the word meek on my resume. <laughs> I still don't have it on my resume. I don't think I'm going to have it on my resume. And everybody here knows why. You know why. Because meek, who hires meek? I mean, meek is an interview killer right there. Huh? You walk into an interview with a potential employer, and the employer says to you across the desk, well, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? And you say, well, I've always thought of myself as someone who's meek. And the there's an awkward silence, and then the employer says, we'll get back to you. Because employers don't hire meek. They don't. You know it. I know it. When I am shopping, when I am shopping for a lawyer, for a realtor, for an inner city public school teacher, when I am in the market for a hockey player, a wrestler, a linebacker, a rugby player, I'm not going to hire Meek. I'm going to hire a tiger, a barracuda. I might even settle for a vulture. But I'm not going to hire Meek because who hires Meek? Besides that, how can a Marine be meek? How can a Navy SEAL be meek? What are the Marines going to do? Change their slogan? Huh? The few, the meek, the Marines. Oh, go Army strong. Cut that. Army meek. Anybody want to sign up for that? I don't think so. Who hires meek? And yet, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. How are they going to inherit the earth? They can't even get their way through rush hour traffic. It's not going to happen. The meek people can't even get their way through the checkout line at the grocery store. How in the world are they going to inherit the earth? 
blessed are the meek. Give me a break. I mean, it's this very thing. Listen, since we're being honest, this is the very reason why some men hate going to church. They do. Oh, they'll go isn't a kind of an appeasing thing to the wife and the kids, etc., etc. So they'll sit through 70 minutes of meek and hear a nice sermon from nice people in a nice room, sitting in a nice chair, and then they'll just kind of compartmentalize that in this little cubby hole, and then and then just kind of mentally put that in this little 70 minutes of meek box. And then after they're done, they'll leave it, forget it, go away, and then another seven days they'll come back and do the same thing all over again. It's what one author calls velvet coffin Christianity. Velvet coffin Christianity. I mean, people describe it this way. Why do you go to such and such church? Well, I go because it's nice. Nice church, nice campus, nice people, nice room, nice looking clothes. It's just a whole lot of big, spongy, angel food cake like meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You think Matthew misunderstood Jesus? You think that was it? Maybe he didn't. He just totally zoned out at that part of the sermon when Jesus was speaking. That has to be it, right? I mean, because who listens to every word of every sermon? I mean, you do, but I mean, but maybe, maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus didn't say that. Maybe, maybe Jesus really said, "Blessed are those who are at their peak." Maybe that's what he. Maybe he said, "Blessed are those who seek." Not meek. Anything but meek. Did he really say that? Well, well, scholars smarter than me think that's exactly what he said. Yeah, like uh, not only in Matthew 5, 5, but also in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Jesus himself says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the word meek. Same word as in Matthew 5, 5. And then in Matthew 21, 5, Palm Sunday, yeah, say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, there's that word again, meek. 21, 5 says gentle there. It's the same word. It's the same word, meek, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of, no, no, I don't think Matthew misunderstood Jesus. That's exactly what he said. He said, blessed are the meek. There's no confusion there. You know what I think the confusion is? I think the confusion comes from the way our culture has concocted a definition of the word meek that was not in existence in Jesus' day. We hear this word meek today and we think, oh, that's... We think that our understanding of the word meek was the same as Jesus' understanding of the word meek. And that's just flat not true. In fact, it seems that we can't even make up our mind what the definition of the word is. 
Uh, uh, For example, if you go to Webster's Dictionary and you look up the word meek, you're going to find these two polar opposite definitions. One definition says enduring injury with patience and without resentment. And then the, the, the secondary definition is deficient in spirit and courage. Now, which do you think our culture has adopted? You know, you, you've already told me. The second one. But is that really? I mean, could, if we, so let's insert that into Matthew 5, 5 and see if it makes sense. Blessed are the deficient in spirit and courage, for they will inherit the earth. No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. No. No. Blessed are those who endure injury with patience and without resentment. There we go. Now we're on to something here. We're on to, we're on to a story behind this verse in Matthew chapter 5, 5. And the story of Matthew 5, 5 is a story that we will find in the Old Testament. The Old Testament book of Psalm chapter 37. You know, the Bible is its own best interpreter. And so Psalm 37 is really the best commentary you can find on Matthew chapter 5, 5. Now, Psalm 37 is what you call, is what uh, uh, we call a wisdom psalm written by King David. You see, what we're going to learn is that the word meek, far from being a spineless kind of word, it was really a word fit for a king. And King David uses this word in Psalm chapter 37 as he delivers this wisdom psalm. Now, Psalm 37 is basically about this. Psalm 37 looks out at the world and sees how godless people, people who deny God and abuse God and don't believe in God, seem to get all the goods. They seem to have all the possessions. They seem to attract all of the pretty girls. They seem to have all of the great homes. And and in Psalm 37, the question is, God, why is it that all the godless people, I look out into the world and I see wickedness, I see godlessness, I see people who don't care about you, and yet they seem to be cashing in. What is up with that? What's up with that? David, 3,000 years ago, sees a world in which people who deny God seem to be cashing in on God and wondering what, what, the, what the story is with all of that. Is, is, his world, is our world that different from his? David sees the world as it is. And people are wondering what's happening. And here is David's response in Psalm 37, verses 9, 10, and 11. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. And here is verse 11. This is the verse from which Jesus takes Matthew 5, 5. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. So we look at our world and we say, God, what is going on? 
And God says, be patient. That's what's going on. Be patient. Endure injury with patience and without resentment. God will come through. He will. So rather than words like spineless, timid, indecisive, and passive, meekness, eyes here, meekness locks on to injustice and godlessness and decay and unwarranted injury. Meekness locks on and meekness chooses to endure patiently and without resentment whatsoever. Meekness locks on. And with the strength that God provides, Psalm 37, 39, God is their stronghold in the time of trouble. God is my stronghold. God is my strength. God is my energy. God is my supply. The meek refuse to budge. The meek choose the path of triumphant patience. Triumphant patience. That's meek. John Lewis, who is a member of Congress, was a civil rights activist and was once beaten mercilessly in the state of Alabama while leading a crowd of 600 people there at Selma. He suffered a fractured skull and scars that you can see on his body to this day. But John Lewis said, listen to this, when I was arrested and when I was fingerprinted, I did not feel small or vulnerable. I felt empowered. I never had that much dignity. It was exhilarating. Meekness. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. You see, that's why it's a royal term. That's why. I mean, that's King Jesus uses it. King David used it, the Hebrew equivalent. And even in uh, Greek culture, it was a word that was bestowed upon the kings in training. Meek in the Greek language, tutoring those princes who would become sovereign monarchs. The word meant that that king was going to be always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. That word meant to those kings that they would have, and I love this phrase, a domesticated wildness about them. A domesticated wildness. Think about that wild stallion that has been trained to observe the word of command by the, by the stallion whisperer. That's meek. And I suppose if we had to use a word today in our language and in our culture, it would be the word humility. Humility. That's why it's such a royal term. 
Someone said this, The one who is meek is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, that person may be in their moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but that person has stopped being fooled about himself. That person has accepted God's estimate of his own life. That person knows that he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, that person knows at the same time, he or she is, in the sight of God, more important than angels. They know well that the world will never see them as God sees them. And frankly, they've stopped caring. Meek. Meek, enduring Injury, patiently, and without resentment. And Jesus says, the meek, the meek will inherit the earth. And you know why, don't you? You know why, don't you? The meek, the meek will, Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth because the meek know who, they know who owns the earth. They know who's in charge of the earth. They know who the sovereign king of the earth is. And they know that they cannot have the earth on any other terms. You you cannot work for that which only God can give. And isn't it true? Whenever we set our sights on possessing something, anything, and whatever that thing is, isn't it true that that in in our futile effort to possess, who is it that becomes possessed? Who is it? We do. We become possessed. The possessive find it all but impossible to avoid being possessed. And the pursuit of the grand inheritance at one and the same time disinherits us. And the meek know this. And so they've stopped trying to fight for their little clod of dirt. You see. They've stopped trying to delight in their little clod of dirt. Any clods of dirt? You've been trying to pursue, to grip onto, to grasp, to have. What happens? We end up getting possessed by that. I'm thinking of the, I'm thinking of the things that would cause us to delight in rather than the Lord. Back to Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. But you know and I know that there are dirt clods all over everywhere that are trying to beckon us. I want you to delight in me. If you delight in me, I'll give you the desires. I'll do that. And so we we fruitlessly pursue those little clods of dirt like the clod of dirt called control. Where I say, you know what? I'm only going to have worth in my life if, if I have life mastery over other people. Well, you are trying, you are, if you do that, you are pursuing the dirt clot of control. Or, or I'm going to try to, uh, I'm going to try to passionately pursue the dirt clot of, of helping. Helping because I only have worth if people need me. See? Or what about, here, what about this? What about the dirt clot of dependence? Meaning, I am going to delight myself, I'm going to delight myself in people who protect me and keep me safe. My life only has worth if people protect me and keep me safe. If you, if you go for that dirt clod, you are pursuing the dirt clod of dependence. What about the opposite of that? The dirt clod of independence, right? Which means I only have worth if I'm free from obligations and demands that others may have on me. Wow. 
Or what about the dirt clod of a relationship where you say, I'm going to delight myself in having Mr. or Mrs. Wright. I only have worth if I have Mr. or Mrs. Wright in my life. Well, then you're pursuing the dirt clod of a relationship. Some people are pursuing the dirt clod of suffering where they say, I only have worth in my life. Uh, um, I, I only have worth in my life when I hurt because when I hurt, that makes me feel relieved at my guilt. You say, that's twisted. Yeah, it is. It is. And then there's the dirt clot of my image. I only have worth if I have a certain image, a certain look. All of these things, all of these things are beckoning us. No, delight in me. Delight in me. And I'll give you the desire. And, and they just don't. Except for one, the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in God. And He will give you the desires of your heart. And meek people have become skilled and disciplined at delighting in the Lord. And church family, it is a skill and it is a discipline of delighting yourself in the Lord. Delighting yourself in the Lord. John Baker calls it in his book, Life's Healing Choices. He calls it consciously choosing to commit all of my life and all of my will to all of Christ's care and all of Christ's control. That's what it means to delight yourself in the Lord. Consciously choosing, I'm going to commit all of my life all of my will to all of Christ's care and all of Christ's control. That's what I'm going... And that means I'm going to stop trying to exert willpower and self-will because it's the... See, it's the self that's gotten me into trouble in the first place. Instead, I'm going to understand willpower as my willingness to accept and follow God's power in my life. That's what it means to consciously choose to commit all of my life and all of my will to all of Christ's care and all of Christ's control. I am gonna, I'm going to follow and accept God's power. Now what does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. Um, and I'll recommend a book. That's out here at the table to the right as you're leaving our worship center. It's written by Tim Chester. And he has a great section in here. The title of the book is, You Can Change. You Can Change. And you can pick this up for yourself. Uh, Listen, do not get this as a Mother's Day gift. (laughs) Bad idea. Good. Okay. All right. Trust me. I love you. You can change. (laughs) Let's not do that. I will tell you what he says in here, though. Tim Chester says that if we're going to consciously choose to commit, this this is great. Only a preacher would love this. He says, to consciously choose to change means that we are going to need to learn, here it is, to preach better. 
we are going to need to learn to preach better. That is to say, you are going to need to learn to be better preachers. You need to learn to preach to your heart. I can't preach well enough to keep you going for seven days. Can't. You're going to have to take over once we leave here. And this is what Chester says. This is great. He says, most of our feelings of unhappiness come because we spend too much time listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. Our thoughts need to be captive to Jesus Christ. We need to stop thinking with our feelings. And instead, you say, well, but that's not being authentic. No, 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 no. No. You know, you're, just because your heart happens to spill out whatever's in it doesn't mean whatever's in it is true. It's possible to be authentically incorrect. We need to stop thinking with our feelings and instead we need to speak the truth to our hearts. Well, what's the truth? God's word is truth. Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active. Living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing Bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God does. So we need to be better preachers. And what we need to do is we need to learn to preach the Word of God to ourselves. Like what? Like delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Like why so downcast, O my soul? Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. That's the Word of God. And God wants His people to preach His Word to themselves. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, and forget not all His benefits. We need to learn to preach the Word to ourselves. So that means tomorrow morning when we get up, we're going to preach a sermon based on Psalm 37, and that sermon is this. God... You are all I need. You are all I need. God, you are all I need. And if you have a wonderful day and you get that big commission, God, you are all I need. And if you show up in your doctor's office and the doctor says it's malignant, God, you are all I need. And when you are being tempted to act out, God, you are all I need. And when you are triumphant over temptation, God, you are all I need. Brothers and sisters, I I plead with you, learn to preach to your heart the word of God. C.S. Lewis once wrote, The moment you wake up in the morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day come rushing at you like wild animals. And the first job of each morning consists in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, the voice of truth, the voice of God, the Word of God, and taking God's point of view and letting that 
that other, larger, stronger, divine life word come flowing in. Preach to your heart. That's what meek people do. And that's why they can endure patiently and without resentment. Jesus Christ displayed the ultimate act of meekness. When he was crucified for your sins and mine. He who being in very nature God. Did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he made himself nothing. He who had all power. Set that power aside. So that he could bring us into his kingdom. So that we could be. Like him. And when we get transplanted into his kingdom. We become. And we are becoming. Through his Holy Spirit's work in our life. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Meekness. There it is. Gentleness. And self-control. He does that. And he does that. As a community, because that word meek in Matthew 5, 5 is in the plural. Don't think in the new heavens and the new earth that he's going to say, okay, you know, John, here's your little plot of land, and Joy, here's your little plot of land, and here's, no, 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 that's individualistic, isn't it? No, no, no. We inherit the earth as a family, as a community. And besides that, we haven't been thinking individually. Anyway, because we've entrusted all things to God the Father, and wherever God is, that's where we want to be. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth.